If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 63. Today we begin in verse 3. And what we've seen so far in chapter 63 is the Lord has returned for the battle of Armageddon and has engaged the enemies of Israel, which are collectively symbolically referred to as Edom. Edom being another word for Esau. So Esau represents all the enemies of Israel that have come against Israel to destroy her. And somebody has engaged these armies of the world by himself. So the question in verse 1 is, who is this? And the answer at the end of verse 1 is, I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. That's our Messiah Yeshua. He returns with the armies of heaven, with you and I, the rapture and resurrected saints. But do we do any fighting? Yeah, we just watch. He speaks forth the word of God and great devastation takes place amongst those who are lost. Verse 2 asks, why is your apparel red? Why is it stained like those who tread the wines in the winepress? We talked last week about that word for press is gaunt which is the first part of Gethsemane. Gatshmoni is an olive press. A press is where you crush things. And here Messiah has come to crush the rebellion against God. If you turn back to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 describes it this way. Verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Messiah saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Which tells us their motivation for attacking Israel in the tribulation period at the end is to keep Messiah from returning to rule and reign over the world. Why would the nations not want that? Who do they serve at that point? Satan. Through the false Messiah. They don't want Messiah to come and establish God's rule on earth. So they come to fight against it. And Messiah is going to wage the battle of Armageddon by himself. So verse 3. Messiah explains, I have trodden the winepress alone. Just like in Leviticus, when we read about the Yom Kippur service, the high priest must do it by himself. He cannot be helped. Just like when Messiah was resurrected and Mary wanted to come hug him, we said, no, you can't do that. Because he had to carry out the putting of his own blood upon the altar in heaven by himself. He could not be helped. Even so... He will vanquish these enemies of God by himself at this great battle. So I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. That is, the various nations of the world. Who fights on God's side? None but Israel. So when it says, turn to Zechariah chapter 14, it tells us who comes against Jerusalem for the battle of Armageddon. I wish it didn't read the way it does, but it says what it says. Zechariah 14.1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, 
and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So every nation of the world outside of Israel has come against Jerusalem. And that's why Messiah says there's no other nation that supports me. No nation of this world, because they're all under the sway of the false Messiah and his king, if you will, Satan. So back in Isaiah 63, it says, For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Does it sound like he's a little peeved? Maybe. Yeah, he's a lot angry here. It says, Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. I want to look at other places that, where this word in Hebrew that's translated here as fury is used because it's translated other ways. And let's go first to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. How do we normally describe the tribulation period? But is the wrath of God being poured out? Let's look at Numbers 25, verse 11. Verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. The word translated fury in Isaiah 63 is the one translated wrath here. So remember what happened. Balaam wanted Balak's money. To get Balak's money, he had to curse the children of Israel. And God said, no, what I have blessed you will not curse. But Balaam wanted that money so bad that he came up with an idea. I know how to get God to curse the children of Israel. I will introduce sexual immorality and pagan idolatry through the beautiful women of Moab and their pagan worship of the idols. And of course, when Israel partook in the sexual immorality and the pagan idolatry, then God broke out against them in wrath. That's that same word that is translated up here in Isaiah 63 is fury. And it indicates God pouring out his wrath upon whom? His children? No. His enemies. His enemies. And Deuteronomy chapter 9 also uses this same word, but translates it entirely differently. Hey, that's a catchy tune. <laughs> Deuteronomy 9. Verse 19. I like this one because it really gives us a mental image. Don't you love mental images? When you can just picture what the words are describing. Deuteronomy 9.19. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure. There's that same word. Translated wrath in Numbers and fury in Isaiah the hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you. The word hot displeasure implies fire. Fire pictures what? Judgment. It's God's pouring out his wrath in judgment upon those 
that are spitting in his face. So no, God's more than just a little unhappy. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. That day of vengeance. Let's go back to Isaiah 61. Remember Messiah quotes from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Galilee in Luke chapter 4. He starts quoting from verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God, it should say, the, my Lord, the Lord, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. He does not finish the verse. Because the end of the verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God. That was not to take place at his first coming. That's taken place at his second coming as we're reading in Isaiah 63. The day of vengeance of our God is the day that God pours out his wrath in judgment upon the wicked, the enemies of God. Let's look back at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. How does God keep describing idolatry in the Bible as adultery, as the wronged husband? If you look in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34, it says, For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. That day of vengeance is God pouring out his wrath. Who's he pouring it out on? Those who have partaken in the pagan idolatry, the worship of the false Messiah and Satan himself. That is jealousy being a husband's fury. Let's look also at Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. Verse 8. Verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. But Isaiah 34 describes more in more detail what that means. Go back to verse 1. Isaiah 34, 1. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come from it, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Why against all nations? Who's come against Jerusalem? All nations. And his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, meaning not buried. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. 
All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and his fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. And on the people of my curse for judgment. And here Edom, it tells us in verse 2, is against all the nations that stand against him. Aren't you glad you won't be part of that army? You and me too. Let's go to Jeremiah 46. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 10. Jeremiah 46, verse 10. It should read, For this is the day of my Lord, the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance. Who do you take vengeance on? Your bride? Your children? No. Your enemies, those that are coming to hurt you. That he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with blood. For my Lord, the Lord of hosts, has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Where does the river Euphrates run? From Turkey, through Iraq, through the Ur of the Chaldees, through Babylon. All that is true. And lastly, let's go to Luke chapter 21. Luke includes some details about the time of the end that Matthew 24 does not. Luke 21, verse 22. We'll start in 20 for context. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance. That all things which are written may be fulfilled. So when Jerusalem is surrounded by all the armies of the world. That's when the days of vengeance prophecies get fulfilled. Let's go to Revelation 19 and read about it. As John wrote about it. It's describing the same events. It just uses some different terms. Revelation 19.11 Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is not the first white horse in Revelation. The first white horse in Revelation was the first seal. But who rode that horse? The false Messiah. That's not who's riding this horse. This is the true Messiah. And he sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Does that sound like Isaiah 63? It does. And his name is called the Word of God. Where did we read that before? John 1.1. 1, 1. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? That's you and me. Followed him on white horses. Not of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Other places, what is that sharp sword identified as? The word of God. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's what is said in Psalms 2 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 63. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. That's the cry to the birds, come get ready. Who's being slaughtered? Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the false messiah. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That was Psalm 2. They've come to keep Messiah from ruling and reigning. Is God afraid? Oh no, can I win this battle? No, it says he laughs and holds them in derision. Ooh, verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. If you don't know who those two are, read Revelation 13. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. That's called idolatry. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Notice, the rest of us don't do any killing. We're just there to be witnesses and encourage Messiah. Because what did 1 Thessalonians 4 say? And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So where he goes, we go. Back to Isaiah 63, we're up to verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. He's looking at all the nations of the world. Isn't there one nation that still stands with God? And the answer is, outside of Israel, not a one. Don't you just want to take your pencil and write and accept the United States? But you can't change the word of God. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm... What's the arm of the Lord? That's Messiah. Brought salvation for me. And my own fury, it sustained me. It makes me think of Revelation chapter 5. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. There's a seven-sealed scroll. And they look for anyone in heaven or on earth other than the Lord that's worthy to break the seals. And what do they find? There is none. Revelation 5. 
Where are you and I at that point? We are in heaven. We are watching this unfold from before Messiah's throne. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is the title deed to the earth that Adam gave over to Satan back in the Garden of Eden. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So go back to Isaiah 63. Messiah is looking to see, is there anyone else who is able to bring this victory for God? And what does he find? There is no one. No one else who is worthy to open the scrolls. No one who's willing to stand for God against this horde invading. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. What is that word arm in Hebrew? Zeroah. On the Seder plate, that shank bone of the lamb that's unbroken is called the Zeroah. But there's another place you see that Zeroah in Isaiah, and that's Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 1. Isaiah chapter 53 identifies exactly what God means by the Zeroah. Verse 1 says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the arm of the Lord, shall grow up before him as a tender plant. As a root out of dry ground, he has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So who is the arm of the Lord? That's Messiah. God makes it very clear for us. When interpreting the scriptures, you have two choices. One is to let the Bible define its terms. The other is to go grab the Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary. Which works better? Let the Bible define the Bible. Absolutely. So back to Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 6 says, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger. And made them drunk in my fury. See that word drunk? It says, and brought down their strength to the earth. Where else does the Bible talk about drunkenness in relationship to the attack upon Jerusalem? Zechariah 12. So let's turn over to Zechariah 12 because it also 
helps us understand what's going on here. If you pass Zechariah, you find Malachi and then Matthew, so don't go too far. Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 1. The burden. What's a burden? It's a massah. It's a prophecy that's really heavy on the heart of the prophet. One they just don't want to give because it hurts so much. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. That's an Armageddon. All the nations are going to come. They're going to attack Jerusalem. They're going to be drunk with their own power, with their own thoughts that they can defeat God, that they can keep Messiah from returning to rule and reign, that they can keep the false Messiah on the throne, and Satan is the God of this world. And it shall happen in that day. I wonder what day that is. Day of the Lord, that I'll make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Why does the United States keep telling Jerusalem they must divide the land? They must divide the city of Jerusalem. They must give half of it to the Palestinians as a capital of a Palestinian state. Have they not read Zechariah 12? Or are they under a great delusion? What's that? We're actually participating in making Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. Yes, we are. That's really today. Yep, that is today. How close are we to these end times events? We're very, very close. Go back to Isaiah 63, we're up to verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. This begins a prayer of Isaiah. Isaiah is the I. I'll mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. What's another word for loving kindness? Mercy. The Hebrew word is chesed. Where does God promise mercy to human beings? In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20. Let's go back to Exodus 20. Does God promise mercy to everyone? Ah, it's not a universal to everyone. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 6. And again, we've shown that there's at least five or six different places in the Bible that we read these same words. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not an or. It's an and. How do we demonstrate our love for God? 
by keeping his commandments. Give me a verse. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. John 14, 15. Yeah. So this is a prayer of Isaiah that begins in Isaiah 63, 7 and continues for a while. So I will mention the loving kindnesses, the mercies of the Lord. Are those mercies for the nations that have come against Jerusalem to destroy her because they worship the beast? The answer is no. The mercies are for those who love the Lord and keep his commandments. Is there another way to say that in Revelation 14, 12? Let's go look at Revelation 14, 12. God is coming to defend the saints. The saints are described for us in Revelation 14, 12 as, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. The faith of Yeshua is the love of God, and we demonstrate it by keeping his commandments. Interesting. Back to Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Hmm. Why does he mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord? He's just talking about the wrath being poured out, but that's on the enemies. What about those who are servants of God, those who love him? He's protecting them, and Isaiah is reminding them, hey, God has always protected his children. He has always defended his children from harm. He always has, which means he always will, for God does not change. Verse 8, for he said, surely they are my people. Children who will not lie. So he became their savior. Who are my people? The idolatrous army that's invading? Or the saints? The saints are his people. Children who will not lie. All liars have their part in what? Lake of fire. Prove it. Revelation 22 verse. Let's go look. Verse 15 ends with, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Back to Isaiah 63, verse 8. So he became their savior. The word savior is what in Hebrew? It's Moshiach. M-O-S-H-I-A, Moshiach. Does that sound kind of like Mashiach? Mashiach is Messiah. Moshiach is Savior. 
Moshiach comes from the verb yesha, from which we get the name Yeshua, which is our Messiah. But Savior has many different meanings in the scripture. It means to deliver, to save, to preserve. So let's look at some of the ways that it's used in scripture. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It does not always mean to save from sin. It also means to deliver from mortal danger. Let's start in verse 1 for context of 2 Samuel 22. As soon as I see everybody's hands stop flipping pages. 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 1, the key verse is 3. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So what kind of deliverance is this? This is a physical deliverance. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer the God of my strength and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. So not only does Messiah save us from our sins, but he is the one who will save Israel from the attack of all the nations of the world at the Battle of Armageddon. Psalm 106 Let's look at another word, another use of that word Savior. Psalm 106, 21. Referring to the golden calf incident, which, yes, God has not forgotten. In verse 21 says, They forgot God, their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Here it refers to God as their savior because of the ten plagues that caused Egypt to relent and allow them to leave. But then when their backs are against the Red Sea, what did God do? He put a pillar of fire between the Egyptian army and the children of Israel until the children of Israel passed through on dry ground through the Red Sea. Then God removed the pillar. Did God make the Egyptian army go forward? No. He merely removed the pillar. They decided, if they can go through on dry land, so can we. Oh, how'd that work out for them? Not so much. Why? Were they God's children, the Egyptian army? No. They were serving pagan idols. Isaiah 19, 19. The burden against Egypt. Isaiah 19, 19. In that day, what day? The day of the Lord. There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Oh, what has happened to Egypt? 
They've repented. They've turned back to God. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. See, this happens at the battle of Gog and Magog. Not only does Israel see that it was God who intervened, but so do the surrounding nations. And Egypt decides they will now worship the Lord. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Who is this savior and mighty one that God's now going to send to Egypt when they repent and turn to him? This is going to be our Messiah, Yeshua. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Can God cause whole nations to repent and turn to him? Absolutely. Is this the first time it's ever happened? Why did Jonah decide to swim with the fishes? He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he said, I knew that if I went, they'd what? They'd repent and you'd forgive them. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. For I am the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelt. There's that tetragrammaton. Your God. That makes it personal. There are two different ways to make a noun that's not a proper noun. A definite noun. One is to add a ha in front of it, which is the definite article. The other is to add a possessive pronoun to the end. So when you say your God, that makes it a specific God. The Holy One of Israel. And who's that? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. So our Messiah, Yeshua, is the Lord, our God, who delivered us from Egypt so many centuries ago. In Isaiah 43.11 it says, I even I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. There is no other source of rescue. Either for the nation of Israel or for our very souls. In Isaiah 45 it continues that theme to let us know that there is only one God, there's only one Lord, there's only one Savior. In Isaiah 45, we have first verse 5. I'm the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Then in verse 15, truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. When you add thee, what does that mean? Only one. Same chapter, verse 21. So Isaiah 45, 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? 
and there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. So when people say that Jesus is not God, do they realize they're saying, therefore, he's not the Lord and he's not the Savior? Whether they know it or not, that's the meaning of their words. Isaiah 49, verse 26. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So when does this happen that he feeds those who oppress you with their own flesh and they drink their own blood? That's at Armageddon. So when Yeshua returns, this tells us that he is Lord, he is Savior, he is Redeemer, he's the Mighty One of Jacob. Back to Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. We didn't do verse 9. Let's do verse 9 first. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Meaning, in all that Israel has suffered in captivity, the Lord has suffered along with them. Did the Lord want to send Israel into captivity? No. So why did he? Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. He said that if they turn away from him and worship other gods, he will send them into captivity. So either he had to keep his word and send them to captivity, or he has to break his word. Does God break his word ever? Give me a verse. Psalm 89, verse 34 says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. When God speaks forth a word, it never changes. So in all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's not that he doesn't see, he sees it. But what must he wait for before he can come and intervene and destroy the enemies of Israel? They must first repent. Give me a verse. Matthew 23, what? 39. You will see me no more until you say... Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Isaiah 63 verse 9 goes on to say, And the angel of his presence saved them. Notice they capitalized angel. Don't be misled by the word angel. Some people think it means only those heavenly critters flying around on wings. The word angel in Hebrew is malach. And it means messenger. So Messiah himself, when he brings the word of God, is considered the angel of his presence. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So every time Israel turned back to God, God swooped in to grab them up, to protect them, to carry them home, to keep them safe until they would again turn away from God and embrace idols. Isaiah 
which case he would have to bring judgment again, but it breaks his heart to do that. When he had Moses tell the people in Deuteronomy 30, today I said before you life and death, what did he then say? Choose life. You get to choose, but God wants you to choose life. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Does the Hebrew there and throughout the scriptures really say Holy Spirit? It really says Spirit of Holiness. We translate it and call it the Holy Spirit, but it's the Spirit of Holiness. I say that because the word saints in the New Testament is the Greek hagios, which means what? Holy ones. So the ones who have the spirit of holiness inside are the holy ones of God. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. So their Savior, their Deliverer, the one who loves and pities them, became an enemy. Why? Why did he turn himself against them? Because of their disobedience. Notice what happens first. But they rebelled. The rebellion comes first. What does it mean to rebel? To turn against. Go back to Deuteronomy 4. How do you show God that you have forsaken him? That you no longer wish to follow him? That you rebel against him? You stop keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy 8.11 Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, which I command you today. Notice in verse 3, is the, this is the chapter from which Messiah gets his quote in Matthew 4.4. 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So which of those words are irrelevant to us? None of them are irrelevant. So if you look at verse 1, whenever I talk about keeping the commandments of God, I normally hear from people, well, which ones? Deuteronomy 8, 1 answers that. Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe. And how long do God's commandments last? Forever. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. The next thing I usually hear is, good thing I'm a Gentile, so I don't have to keep those bad old commandments. <clears throat> yeah, right, okay. Let's see what the Bible says. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, which means what? It's really true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility or perverseness of their mind. If the world's divided into Jews and Gentiles, and you're not to walk as the Gentiles, 
then does that mean we're supposed to keep the commandments of God? Yep. Keep reading. Verse 22. That you put off concerning your former conduct, that is, quit living like you used to. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Does that say repent? Come back to God and walk uprightly in his commandments, statutes, and judgments? Yes, it does. Same chapter, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, what did we just read? What did Israel do? They grieved the Holy Spirit of God. How did they do that? They rebelled against him. They refused to keep his commandments, statutes, and judgments. Paul says, don't do that. Hmm. Yes, ma'am. Did they say, which is the greatest commandment? I think they were asking him which one is the greatest. They asked, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? Right. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Because every commandment of God is one of those. Right. Keeping the Sabbath, that's your love of God. Not committing adultery, that's the love to your fellow man. So if you truly love God, you do what? You keep his commandments. If you love your neighbor, you keep the commandments about your neighbor. And it was the Pharisee that asked, so do you think the reason why he answered it that way was because he didn't want to Yes, you can't keep enough commandments to be saved. Right. You keep commandments because you're saved. And if you perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbors, yourself, you will not break a single commandment. So what people tend to say is, well, I do those, then I can break the rest of them. They don't understand that if you break the rest of them, you're not keeping those either. Which verse says, what is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome? 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. So they understand those wrong. They think the word love is an English word that means to have mushy feelings for. But love in Hebrew is an action verb. How do you treat people? And if you keep the commandments of God, you are treating them well. Ah, that's where we go back to, we let the Bible define the Bible. Don't go grab funk and wagnalls and see what the word love means. Yeah. So what's the Hebrew for mushy feelings? <laughs> there isn't one. When we tell someone that we have mushy feelings for them, what are we supposed to say? You would say chesed, loving kindness. Loving kindness. That's the closest you got to mushy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was Moshe, Diane. <laughs> 
What is Moshe? That's Moses. Okay. Back to Isaiah 63. Verses 11 to 13 go together. But before we read 11, let me just remind you once more in verse 10. It says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he say, by? Because it's already written. What does the New Testament tell us? The Old Testament is there for? Our instruction. Well, if in the modern church they teach you're not to read the Old Testament, that means you don't learn anything from it. That means you can't read the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, if you take all the Old Testament quotes out of the New Testament, you got a pamphlet. Not much left. Yeah. So verses 11 to 13. Then he remembered the days of old. That is, thinking back to the exodus from Egypt. Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses? With his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. Did the children of Israel in the wilderness repeatedly say, where is God? We're thirsty. How come you brought us up out of Egypt? We're hungry. Why do you bring us up out of Egypt? Who wants this awful quail we've been eating because we demanded it? So they kept turning against God and against Moses that God put in position to lead them out of the way. What should their attitude have been? Thank you, Lord. One of gratitude. He delivered them from slavery. He parted the Red Sea to deliver them from Pharaoh's army. He fed them with manna from heaven, with water from the rock, with quail from heaven. And they still complained and complained and complained. Scripture says even their shoes didn't wear out. How many are still wearing the same pair of shoes you did 40 years ago? I would tend to say none of us. And look at how we live today versus walking in the wilderness for 40 years and the shoes don't wear out and they still fit. Oops, I see red numbers out there. Somebody says the audio has gone down. The response from others says it's good on my end. Then the first says it was only on his end. And Susie Q reminds everybody that sometimes if your audio goes out, you just need to reconnect. Okay. Let's turn back to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. God is remarkably tolerant because... You really don't see people obeying him hardly ever until maybe the New Testament. I mean, you, you get a person here and a person there, and, and they're not really faithful their whole lives. You see all their flaws, but then you 
get to the New Testament, you begin to see the point that God was driving at from Genesis. Yeah. It's especially instructive to look at the southern kingdom of Judah, where for a generation they will walk before God uprightly. The next generation turns away and brings in the pagan idols. The next generation tears down the pagan idols and follows God with their whole heart. The next generation rebuilds the idols. And when is Israel blessed versus cursed? So what are we supposed to learn from that? Is it better to follow the Lord or to rebel against him? Yeah, why don't we learn that message? But in Exodus 14, I want to read the whole chapter. Because it's such a neat chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is a quote. Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahirot. Between Migdal and the sea, a Migdal is a military fortress. So he's, in, he's specifically putting them between an Egyptian military fortress and the Red Sea. And on either side of them will be mountain ranges. Opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. God specifically puts them with their backs to the Red Sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Which is another way of saying what? They're being led by men. They won't ask for directions, so they got lost. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Oh, I wish it didn't say that. Because it doesn't mean hard, it means to strengthen. That is to give courage. So Pharaoh, who was terrified with the death of the firstborn and the other plagues, God's going to give courage enough to put that behind him and carry on. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Stop and think for a moment. The children of Israel, with the mixed multitude, have left Egypt. Are they warriors? Are they heavily armed troops? No. So who does Pharaoh send after them? A few guards? No. The entire Egyptian army. All of it. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's to bring the entire military might of the greatest, most powerful nation in the world against a group of slaves that have been set free. Verse 5, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots. And all the chariots of Egypt. If there's 600 choice chariots, how many chariots are there? There's a whole bunch. With captains over every one of them. Which means every chariot has a captain. And the captain's going to have hundreds of soldiers following along behind with swords and spears, etc. And Lord hardened or strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. How many? All. all. His horsemen and his army and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi Hirot before Baal Zephon. 
And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Why are they afraid? Egypt rules the world. This is the mighty army that destroyed every other nation. Then he said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have they forgotten the ten plagues already? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Have they forgotten that they were crying out to God for deliverance? Yep, they forgot it. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? I don't remember reading that anywhere in scripture to you. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. How can he tell the people, do not be afraid? Here comes the mightiest army in the world. What are they to God? Nothing. So he says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. What's going to happen to every one of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh? They're going to die. They're going to drown in the Red Sea. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Can you see the faces of the children of Israel? Moses says, just go forward. Theologians today say, oh, it was only an inch or two of water. No, it wasn't. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. I'm sure Moses was thinking, hey, why didn't I think of that? And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is a precursor, if you will, to the Battle of Armageddon. This is the mightiest nation of the world coming against the children of Israel who have no ability to defend themselves against such an onslaught, but for God. Verse 18, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who's that? That's Messiah who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. In other words, between Israel and the Egyptians. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to one, and it gave light by night to the other. So that the one did not come near the other all that night. Is that normal? Does a fire normally give light one direction only? I've heard of a unidirectional microphone, but a unidirectional fire, that's God. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Hebrew that is behind these words describes the walls of water as being like jello. You could have poked it with your fingers and it would have jiggled. Of course, I wouldn't recommend it. 
So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. Where is the Lord? In the pillar of fire and cloud. And he, quote, troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. But what's the problem? The wheels have already fallen off. Even if they're running away from Israel, they're going to drive them with difficulty. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. Modern theologians say an inch or two of water. Yeah, I don't think so. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. That's where they air in the movie The Ten Commandments. Pharaoh's watching it all happen. No, Pharaoh was in the midst of the sea. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Yeah, didn't last too long, did it? So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 63, up to verse 14. As a beast goes down into the valley... And the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. What's that mean? That the Lord is going to bring the children of Israel back to the land and he will defend and protect them for the sake of his own name. Keep a finger here and go to Ezekiel chapter 36. God's salvation is never because we deserve it. It's always for the sake of his great name. In Ezekiel 36, verses 16 and following, we read these words. Ezekiel 36, verses 16 and following. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, who's the word of the Lord? Yeshua. Yeshua. The word saying means a quote. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. Meaning what? By walking against the commandments of God, doing whatever they pleased. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. 
Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. There was very little that offended God more than their sacrificing their children to the pagan god Molech. Verse 19, so I scattered them among the nations. That was Deuteronomy 28. He, he had promised that. And they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. There have been three diasporas, three captivities. The Assyrian, the Babylonian, and the Roman. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they, that is the Gentiles, said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they've gone out of his land. So whenever Israel was taken into captivity, the nations would gloat that they beat the God of Israel. Did they beat the God of Israel? They did not. What happened when Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, had a drunken orgy with the vessels from the temple of God in praise of the pagan gods that defeated God? He wrote on the wall, Mine, Mine, Teko, you farson, and that night... Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. Verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. God knows as long as Israel's out of the land, people will blaspheme God over it. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. Look at the spelling. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. That is, Israel has started the regathering process and become a nation in 1948, not because they were a repentant, godly nation, but because God has concern for his holy name. And God told us that after two days, 2,000 years, they would come back. So God's bringing them back. So the nations, instead of saying their God couldn't protect them, will say their God is doing exactly what he promised, exactly when he promised. Verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which they have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. Remember similar words from that in Ezekiel 38, the battle of Gog and Magog, when God destroys the invading armies of Gog and his associates, then the nations will know that he is the Lord. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Again, 1948, Israel became a nation again after almost 2,000 years. Verse, 30, verse 25 says, Then, meaning after I bring them back to the land, I will sprinkle clean water on you. What's that clean water? That's the water of the ashes of the red heifer. That requires the temple to stand. Does that mean the temple's about to be rebuilt? It most certainly does. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, which means Israel will be saved. That happens, like I said, at the Battle of Gog and Magog, about three years into the tribulation period is my best guess and when it happens. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
That new spirit is the Holy Spirit. This is the salvation of the nation. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. There's the Holy Spirit. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, the law being written upon the hearts and minds of the people. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be their God. That's the millennial kingdom after Messiah returns. So they get saved before Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom. It's between the rapture and the second coming seven years later. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Will they be eating piggies anymore? No, uh-uh. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. What is the third horse of the apocalypse, the third seal? Famine. When Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom, no more famine. Famine's over. Now multiply the fruit of your trees, the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. They will then look back on the sin that caused them to be sent into captivity and regret that such things ever occurred. Verse 32 again says, Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. That is, God didn't bring Israel back together as a nation in 1948 because they were the most righteous nation in the world, fearing God and walking in all his ways. It wasn't like that. So why did he do it? Verse 33, Thus says the Lord God, it's actually my Lord, the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you. What does it mean, which are left? after the battle of Armageddon, shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, it's actually my Lord, the Lord, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock. Why will he let Israel now inquire of them? I thought he doesn't hear the prayers of those whose ears turn away from his commandments. Because they've repented and come back to God and now he hears the prayer. Like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock in Jerusalem on his feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. He does that all for the sake of his great name. And how are we going to respond throughout the millennial kingdom? We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. For those of you who don't like Davidic dance, get over it. Okay. 
Back to Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 15. It says, Look down from heaven and see your habitation holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? So Isaiah says to God, look down at this Jerusalem that's supposed to be praising your holy name, living before you uprightly, obeying the commandments of God. Is that the way Jerusalem was as Isaiah prayed? Or had they cut creches in the temple walls to put up idols? Let's look over at Ezekiel chapter 8. See if it will ruin our appetites for lunch. Ezekiel chapter 8. Starting in verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. Chapter 8 of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. What happened at the north side of the altar? That's where the sin offering was. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there north of the altar gate was this image of jealousy in the entrance. That is, they've set up an image of a pagan god to say this temple is dedicated to him. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you'll see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. He said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they're doing there. That means he's going into the courtyard of the temple. So I went in and saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts. We're talking pigs and such things. And all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. That's the walls of God's own temple. And there stood between them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, the Sanhedrin. In their midst stood Zaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Who are the only ones that can burn incense in the temple? The priests. Is that who's burning the priests here? No. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? So each of the 70 leaders of Israel have their own idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said to me, turn again, you'll see greater abominations that they're doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? The sun god. The idol. 
And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you'll see greater abominations than these. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. Yet never turn your back on God. And their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east in the temple of God. They're turning their buttocks to God, which was a great offense in those days. You would never do that to a, a judge or a court official or a king, much less to God. But they're doing it so they can worship the sun coming up in the east. Replacing the worship of God with the worship of the sun god. That's enough. Let's go back to Isaiah. I can't read anymore. So Isaiah is praying to God and saying, Would you look down, Lord, at this house that was built for you to house your glory and what they've done to it? Verse 16 says, Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. Yes, Lord, you are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. Why does Isaiah bring up the fact that God is our Father? Keep a finger here and turn to Malachi. The last chapter before Matthew. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son. Let me give you a chance to get there. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, another word for master is Lord, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. By using the term the Lord of hosts, God's saying this didn't just happen anciently. It's happening now. How many people are there out there that claim to be Christian, that claim God is their father, and they live like the devil? If I'm the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence? Turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Again, Lord and Master, same word in Hebrew. At least one of them. In Luke 6, 46, these are Messiah's own words. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? You're saying, you call me Lord, but where's my obedience? Where's my honor? Let's go back to Isaiah 63, verse 16 for a moment. The very last phrase in verse 16 says, Our Redeemer, in Hebrew that's Goaleinu, from everlasting is Meolam. So go alenu me alone. 
our Redeemer from everlasting, that God from the beginning, before he created the heavens and the earth, is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world to be the Redeemer. And he's still waiting on Israel as a whole to accept him as their Lord and Savior. There have always been Jewish people that were saved, but he's looking for the whole nation. What does Romans eleven twenty six say? And all Israel shall be saved. That's a day where the Lord in heaven is going to rejoice. And people on earth are going to like it too. They just don't know it yet. Verse 17 is translated differently in a Jewish Bible than in a Christian published Bible. In Isaiah 63, 17, it says, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? It's just not our fault. It's God's fault. Yeah, the way it should be translated is, O Lord, why have you let us stray from your ways? So the intent of it is, Isaiah is praying. He says, Lord, why didn't you just make us robots? Where we don't have any free will. Where we just have to be good. We just have to honor you. We just have to be saved. Why did you give us free will? Oh Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Again, it's not that the Lord hardened our hearts. It's that the Lord allowed us to harden our hearts against him. How many times have you said, Lord, why didn't you just make us be obedient? Would you want a spouse who was forced to love you? Or do you want a spouse who chose to love you? God also wants those who choose to love him. That's why he gives us the choice. And it is honestly our choice. But then there are consequences. So verse 17, O Lord, why have you let us stray from your ways and let us harden our hearts from your fear? Return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. He's saying, Lord, can't you just make us come home? Can't you just make us repent? Is the Lord going to do that? No. Go back to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 20. How often do we think, boy, we'd have done things different if we were God? In fact, there have been a couple of movies that way. Evan Almighty was one where a human being gets to take God's place for a little while to see how much fun it is. Have you ever seen the movie? Blasphemous, but funny nonetheless. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? In other words, you can do it or not do it. It's available to you. 
but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I've said before you today, life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God. Always, it starts there, love the Lord your God. To walk in his ways, that is, this is what the love of God means. To walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. The Lord your God may bless you in the land which you go to possess. What does it mean to love the Lord? To keep his commandments. It's not just in the New Testament. It's here in the Old Testament too. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear. Why does he say heart turns away and not your ears? Because the heart's not talking about the thing that pumps blood. It's talking about your innermost desires. Do you want to follow God? But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, it's a choice you make. And are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Sin has what? Consequences. You shall not prolong your days land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess, which means they will go into captivity. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. I have said before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give him. So why did God let us go astray? He gave us free choice. He said, I set life and death before you, but he didn't say, and I don't care which one you pick, did he? He said, choose life. But then he leaves it to us to say, will we or will we choose death? But that's Old Testament. Okay, go up to Romans chapter 6. Yes, I'm... You and your descendants may live, meaning life eternal. Yeah. If the descendants continue to walk in the love of God. What's that? They have to be faithful themselves. What he's saying is the promise continues from generation to generation. You have the right to choose for yourself. Your parents don't choose it for you. And your children, unfortunately, must choose for themselves. Why don't I wish we could choose for our children? But he includes them, so that's positive. He includes them, so that's positive. Anytime I think, boy, I wish I could choose for my children, then I say, but that means my parents could have chosen for me, and that would have been a catastrophe. (laughs) So, Romans 6, I digress. Romans 6, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin? What is sin? Lawlessness. Because we're not under law. We're not saved by the law, but we're saved by grace. His answer, may genoito. Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Or in other words, you still have two choices, life or death. 
How do you choose life? You love the Lord with all your heart and you're obedient. How do you choose death? You choose sin. You choose to turn away from God and say, I'll do what I want. Back to Isaiah chapter 63. We're up to verse 17. Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Ah. See for your servant's sake. The Jewish sages don't, don't say that that refers to the children of Israel rather back to the patriarchs. It says, quote, from Radak, who's one of the Jewish sages, although we are unworthy, return to us for the sake of your faithful servants, the patriarchs and the progenitors of the 12 tribes. That's the way they interpret this verse meaning that you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would inhabit the land forever. Which means you will keep that promise and you will return us back to the land because you promised. And if you don't return us back to the land, then you blaspheme your own holy name and you won't do that. And that fits very well into what Isaiah is praying here. Verse 18. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. God promised they would dwell in the land forever. He didn't say continuously forever. But how long did Israel get to live in the land? All the 12 tribes crossed the Jordan River right after the death of Moses. They were under the rule of the judges for 400 years. And then under the reign of King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. Then they broke into two nations. And about 200 years later, the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity and they've never come back. So compared to eternity, Israel's been in the land for a very short period of time. Babylon took the southern kingdom of Judah captive for only 70 years, and then they came back. But then Rome dispersed them, and they've been dispersed for 2,000 years. So Isaiah reminds God that you can't let them stay out in the nations forever. For your own name's sake, you've got to bring them home. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. Verses 20 to 28. If you ever hear someone say, God doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to, the answer is yes, he does. If he promised it, he will do it. Because the scripture says he will not alter a word that has gone out of his mouth. <coughs> Luke 21, 
verses 20 to 28. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. So what days are we talking about? Tribulation period. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. When Messiah speaks these words, Israel doesn't realize that in 40 years they're going to be dispersed out of the land and wander for almost 2,000 years. But these words should be words of comfort during the diaspora, knowing that God says we're coming back. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Too many theologians say this means until 1948. Jerusalem is still trampled down by the Gentiles. What happens whenever believing Jews go up on the Temple Mount to pray? There's riots, there's stoning, there's burning, there's knifings. Why? Because Gentiles control the Temple Mount. Verse 25 says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity to the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're talking about the tribulation period here. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Are we beginning to see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars? And is there distress in the nations? Are there hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, pestilence, floods? Yeah, we have all these things. Drought. Remember, we're being recorded. There is a neat sign coming back from the Chattanooga airport, if you've ever seen it, on I-75, that says, every knee shall bow, even Democrats. <laughs> I don't know who put up that sign. But I'm sure, I'm sure they were not Democrats who put up the sign. Wayne, yes, sir. Um, back on the second, all the planets lined up in the line. Yep. You saw that alignment. We also had another blood moon. Yep. Revelation 11. There are signs in the sun, moon, and stars. There really are. And all that means is look up, for our redemption draws nigh. Does the Bible say that Jerusalem is still trampled down of the nations today? The answer is it does. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, Believe out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Where does that 42 months bring them then? To the end of the tribulation period. 
Jerusalem is trampled down to the Gentiles until Messiah returns for Armageddon. Back to Isaiah. That's Romans. Isaiah was earlier. Keep flipping, keep flipping. There we go. Verse 19. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who are never called by your name. Remember, when Isaiah writes this, Israel hasn't gone into captivity yet. But God is telling us what's going to happen from that point forward, 2,700 years ago, up until eternity future. So verse 19 is talking about the Roman diaspora when Israel's been out of the land for almost 2,000 years. You young people, when you were born, Israel was a nation. And you may not even realize that they were not a nation for almost 2,000 years. But some of us in here, not me of course, were born back when Israel was not a nation. But I do remember it. Yeah, I was right there on the, on the cusp of it. You were five years old when Israel became a nation after almost 2,000 years. Has that ever happened before, that a nation was gone for almost 2,000 years and then restored? And born in a day. Born in a day. Chapter 64, verse 1. This continues the prayer of Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Not rent, but rend. What does rend mean? To tear. to tear open. That you would come down. That the mountains might shake at your presence. So Isaiah is saying, after your people have been in exile for so long, you're going to bring them back. And then you're going to come down from the heavens. Let's go back to Exodus 19. What happens when God comes down to this earth in all his power and majesty? Scares everybody to death, but there's earthquakes, there's fires, etc. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 18. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 18. I still see pages turning, so I'll give you a moment. Then it came to pass on the third day, that is the day of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. In the morning that there were thunderings, that word in Hebrew is kolot, it means voices. God spoke and everybody heard it in their own language. But weren't they all Israelites speaking Hebrew? No. The mixed multitude was from all nations of the world. So like in Acts chapter 2, when God spoke, everybody heard it in their own language. And lightnings, that is fire, comes down in the mountain. And a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Let's go to Ezekiel 38. In Ezekiel 38, in the middle of the tribulation period, God will return physically, bodily, and stand. And what happens? Or at least we know he personally intervenes. Verses 18 to 23. And it came to pass at the same time. So that's in the tribulation period. When Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, it's actually my Lord, the Lord, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Does it mean a little earthquake? No, let's read. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that are on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Wow, what kind of an earthquake does it take for it to be centered in Israel and to feel it here in Georgia? That's a big one. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Why? Because God's presence will be here on earth. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I'll bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I'll be known the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Will the Lord rend the heavens? He absolutely will. Look at Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 describes it for us. Isaiah 24, verses 1 to 23. We can't possibly get that far. We can at least take a look. Verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because, why? Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Oh, but I thought the laws only applied to Jews. That's not what this says, is it? Therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Verse 19, the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. Does that sound like what we read in Ezekiel 38? Yeah. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Why? Its transgression shall be heavy upon it. And it will fall and not rise again. 
It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. That's Revelation chapter 12. Michael and his angels fight with Satan and his angels. And on the earth, the kings of the earth, that is the Lord himself, will fight with the kings of the earth. That's Revelation 19.11. Verse 23, then the moon will be disgraced, that is, it won't shine. And the sun is shamed, it won't shine. For the Lord of hosts will reign. And if we had time, we'd go back and look at Revelation 19.11, but fortunately we did that already, because our time has expired. And we will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 2.